Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Devis, and this is Cosmos Insight, where we interview experts around key issues in science. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Milady Giraldo, Global Leader at Lenovo Data Center Group's Life Sciences, HPC and AI Division, about big data and personalized medicine. So thank you for joining me, Milady. Thank you. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you. So tell me, what is Precision Health and Personalized Medicine, and what's its relationship to big data and artificial intelligence? Sure. Precision medicine or precision health is a way to deliver patient care by tailoring treatments and medical decisions to the individual. So you can contrast that to traditional healthcare in which we diagnose and treat people based on the average person. And that's why precision medicine, it's really needed today because no, no one is really um, average. And having that one size fits all means that we have a lot of hit and misses when we treat you. So we want to get to a point in which we, we measure your individual susceptibility to diseases. We predict what happens before it happens. We turn, um, we really turn, you know, again, today we do, we, we say we do healthcare, but we're doing a lot of sick care. We want to turn healthcare into more predictive rather than reactive. And how do you gain that kind of personalized data? So, so again, the data comes from various sources. We want to get to a point in which we um, get data from your genome, but also there will come a point in which we will be gathering data from, you know, think about the various levels of biological information that we could get. So one is your genome, right? Uh, the blueprint of what makes you you. On the other hand, we can, you know, take snapshots in time of what genes are being turned on and off. So that's called, you know, your transcriptome. There's something else called the proteome, all the proteins that are being generated. So various levels of information. Now, that's only one individual. But the complexity here comes when not only do we do it for one person, but we're doing the this for populations. So that's why it's big data. It's a lot of different features that we are tracking on a single person, but then the complexity increases when we think about the fact that it's really informative when we compare one person in the context of a population. So a lot of people, a lot of data. Why is there such a need for big data now and machine learning and AI and genomics, especially at that population level? So big data, again, because this effort requires collecting data from multiple sources. Think of all the instruments to account for a huge number of features. And it's a feature, again, not only one person, but it's of entire population. So the, the scale of that is huge. So that's where, you know, the big data needs. Um, machine learning and AI are some of the most cutting edge methods nowadays that we use to process the big data, to make inferences, predictions, and to get to that um, evidence that we need to make the actionable recommendations that eventually you want your doctor to make. Based on all the data that we end up collecting, we want to get to an actionable recommendation for you. So, Yeah, and because that is such a huge data set, as you said, um, first of all, within the individual's genome, then at the population level, um, how much more quickly are we able to speed up the process by using huge computers? That's a good question. So when you compare, say, say comparing a supercomputer, so the fastest supercomputers compared to a personal computers are said to be over a thousand times faster. Now, when we compare that to a person, the, the answer of, you know, which one is faster, it really depends. The human brain is really much better at formulating questions and making inferences, sort of the beginning and the, and the end of the process. But high-performance computing 
allows us to do things that we can't normally do. Um, you know, th there are things that, for example, with a naked eye, we can't see uh, or we don't have time to compute. Um, so again, in, and also nowadays with this type of analysis, no longer are we looking at one gene in a few people, and you know this very well, we're looking at multiple genes and areas that are called non-coding genes, many, many different types of information on many people. So the scale and complexity of modern biological research wouldn't be possible without HPC. So based on that, if, we're, if that kind of HPC is able to look at simultaneous data at the same time and analyze it, where is the human role in that? What's the need still for researchers to collate and analyze that data and turn it into a conclusion that we can use? Um, and how has that shifted in terms of the role of a scientist or an engineer from 10 years ago? That's a great question. Um, and I think that question sometimes echoes the fear that, that some people have that eventually if we keep doing this AI machine learning, it will replace humans and, and our role in the pursuit of knowledge, if you would. But, you know, to date, researchers are, are still integral, key to formulating the questions, collecting the data, guiding the research, and making the inferences that move science forward. I see high-performance computing as tools to help us do what we would normally do manually, but at a much larger scale. Because we use supercomputers, we can um, take in more variables in our calculations. We can calculate things faster than what our brains can compute or, or what our eyes can see. So I, I think that the human element in this won't become obsolete anytime soon. Um, you know, I, I see these methods as there, I mean, to date, what it is, the state of, of things today, um, machine learning and AI, are there to assist us to focus our work? Let me give you an example in, in diagnostic imaging, for example. Um, and this is an area where AI is gaining momentum. There, AI is used to, um, you know, reduce the number of images that the doctor has to see, but at the end, you know, so that he or she can focus on the in-depth analysis. But at the end of the day, the diagnosis rests on the physician. But, you know, will we get to one point, for example, when perhaps artificial intelligence is, you know, matches the ability of the physician or maybe exceeds it? Perhaps, I mean, that's the goal, but, but that doesn't mean, um, that, that our role will be taken away. What I think, I, I think that, the persistence and curiosity of the human mind will be such that, say we conquer disease at one point, or we have um, you know, an artificial intelligence that will replace my physician. I think we'll move on to asking other questions, to inventing other things. So the, the pursuit of knowledge will continue. <laughs> of course, the capacity for human curiosity is endless, no matter how much we have to make our job easier. We'll keep asking new questions that we couldn't ask 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, no, I like to keep that hopeful uh, outlook in life. And, uh, and I think we'll continue to ask questions, uh, invent new things. So, so it's an we exciting future. Will. So for people who are worried about personalized healthcare in terms of the information that's gained, they often, it, it's quite common for people to feel um, like they can't guarantee that the security of that data will be protected. Um, how does high processing computers, how, how do you deal with that both as a, as a researcher and as someone who knows the benefit of it? Um, yeah, that's something that's, you know, front and center in the minds of a lot of people, which is why 
again, you know, there's this question of, you know, what's the future of computing in terms of will it move entirely to the cloud, to the public cloud, which has its benefit, right? Like, for example, perhaps it's easier to share data across institutions or so on, although that's arguable. Um, but then I think, you know, and then on the other camp is, you know, th having the, these sort of installations in your home institution where you can um, ensure security and safety of the data, it's there in your own premises. And so you have more control. Um, so I think the future um, of, of, you know, anything that has to do with high performance computing will be somewhere in between. Um, you know, more and more we see, you know, again, because of cyber attacks and um, policies changing and demands from the population that they want their data to be safe. Um, I think, you know, the on-premise solution of, you know, having clusters is here to stay for a long time. Again, over time, we'll see that evolving to having capabilities to also have something somewhere on the cloud. But I think um, the future in computing is hybrid. And that's good. That's a beautiful. That's definitely going to be something I'm putting in the article. The future of computing <laughs> is hybrid. <laughs> it's, some, it. it's some sort of sci-fi, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so good. Um, so are there any limitations to um, how, not just with computing and the amount of data we can collect from computing, but using genomics as part of that um, collection for health and precision healthcare specifically? Um, and how will those limitations be affected and addressed in the future? So are you talking about collection of data or where are you getting at mostly? Uh, what so is sort of, of interest Let's to you? just break that, that down. So first of all, genomics is extremely important data that carries so much that we can't necessarily see with the naked eye. That's why this kind of data is so useful when looking at precision healthcare. So are there limitations to collecting the entire genomic data as opposed to specific oh, yeah. genes? Yes, absolutely. So I, I can see limitations on various fronts. So first of all is the fact that we tend to collect snapshots in time. But think about, so if we look at, how do I explain germline? So, um, <laughs> so generally we can take a picture of the DNA that makes you you and it's the copy of your blueprint that you pass on to your offspring, right? So all of your cells have that same blueprint, right? That's, that's hopefully not going to change even as you mature. You may accumulate some changes over time, but that's, that, that's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty static, right? But there are other changes. There are other types of tissues. Say, for example, uh, cancer. When you look at um, genomics in the context of cancer, um, you know, those cell populations change over time. So one of the problems right now, or even when we talk about the human genome, there is no one human genome. There's a huge variation, which is why we're at this point, right? Trying to sequence everyone. Um, so even within a single individual, in cases like cancer, for example, that snapshot in time will not be enough, right? Or think, for example, the other examples we were talking about, there are various levels of information that we have to take into account here. The genome, which is your genes, right? And genes are important because they code, or they, they have instructions for something that is called proteins that, that are important. But there are other parts of your genome, they're called non-coding regions, which are not captured by those methods. And they are hugely important for other processes. So 
again, genomics is hugely helpful, as you said, but it's, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. We need to connect it to many other types of information, which is why this is so hard to, to, to do, right? Because again, it's information about, you know, your genes, the other areas that are the, the non-genes, the non-coding genes is the proteins, is the ones that are turned on, which ones are turned off, and many other layers of information. Now, that's just one person. Now, consider having, you know, keeping track of that one person, but then now multiply that by the population of Earth, right? And then knowing that we all change over time. So that's one of the limitations of the entire process. It's quite complex, but, but I am hopeful. Um, we are getting started. We are um, not there yet, but, but, but we are moving in the right direction. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> I, I feel that in my soul, really. <laughs> The complexity of genetics is is vast and there are so many things that all work together to get you to who you are. So making it personalized and making it precise is a great challenge because of the limitations of technology that we're trying to address. Yeah, I think that even before we get to that goal of personalizing, I think there will be a midway or, or what we're trying to, to get to before we get to that personalizes is medicine to a subpopulation. So if we can place you within a population of people based on a trait I'm looking at, disease versus non-disease, or your race, um, if I know that from your particular group that I can put you under, um, at least you're part of that group. So it allows us, so no longer you're, you know, it's the average treatment, but perhaps we will get to the personalized population treatment. Um, and that will be, that will get us one step closer to hopefully one day treat the individual rather than the population they come from, don't you think? Yeah, so based on that, because that just made me think, um, is this a way that, or this a method that we can use to address um, vast data gaps in our science in terms of, you know, women are underrepresented and how a lot of different races are underrepresented? Does it help? Well well, yeah, no, and that's, that's, that's actually one of the reasons why we see these population level efforts that I show you on the map. Um, many of those efforts were born out of the desire of that country uh, of, or that organization to want their people to be in the public record. Because at the beginning, the human genome was a, a Caucasian male, right? And then, you know, over time, it became dominated by a certain population, right? And so... Again, there's the question that if we base all of, all of our insights on that bias sample, then perhaps those inferences won't apply to my population. And so that's why there are efforts all over the world to, to sequence people with different um, characteristics. So we have that catalog. Absolutely. Um, and that shows the importance of um, precision medicine, not just on an individual level, but as an understanding of the entire population as a whole, which is really yeah. fantastic. But you're right that what will continue to be a challenge is to make sure that those underrepresented populations, that in the population, they're just few, um, that they get represented in those studies so that, you know, we can take their information into account. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's something for the policymakers and for the directors and organizers of these efforts to, to think about. Wonderful. And um, something for our future science policymakers to do as well. So keep Absolutely. that in mind. Thank you so much for talking to me today. That was really fascinating. And I feel like I've learned a lot more about precision health as well. 
Um, so for everybody listening, thank you for being here. This has been Cosmos Insight. If you would like to find out more about precision medicine and other parts of science and science issues, you can visit us at cosmosmagazine.com. Thank you.